We are deep in the throes of Halloween season, so there is no better time to join us here on Monster Movie House. <laughs> it's a show that is dedicated to all things cinema, right? But Absolutely. Especially genre cinema. Especially. Um, first of all, thank you to our sponsors, uh, the University of Tampa and the streaming channel Mascot TV. Uh, I'm the first of your two hosts, Chris Vanderkay, and I am here with my fellow script writing instructor and fellow fan of genre cinema, Tom Hammond. Tom Hammond. That's me. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Yeah? I'm doing fine. I watched a lot of great movies this last weekend. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, about what we're going to talk about, and I will agree that there was a lot of prep involved in this particular discussion. So um, what we got on the docket for this week, uh, as we always do, we're going to start with a recommendation for an upcoming film. I actually got to screen something that hasn't been released yet, so I'm going to talk about that for just a couple minutes. Then uh, we're going to do our physical media roundup, uh, and then... I think the physical media roundup is probably going to end with a title you're talking about from Richard Franklin, which will lead us into the big picture conversation. That's right. Which is going to be this week about Hitchcock acolytes. Mm -hmm. And by that, basically, we mean the idea that, I mean, who isn't influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, who's seen an Alfred Hitchcock film? But we're talking about filmmakers who it's very clear were influenced. They're either enormous fans or even uh, more to the point, I think, in some cases, you can see the influence of Hitchcock's work on the movies as you watch them. So that's what we'll be talking scene about. Scene by scene. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, I'll start off with the title we were just I just mentioned. All right, there's an, uh, an upcoming film comes out on October 25th in New York and LA, but it will be going wide uh, soon after that, and I'm sure that there will be a VOD release for it uh, soon after that. Uh, the film is called Making Waves: The Art of Cinematic Sound, and it's a documentary. And uh, I really was. I've seen, I'm sure you've seen documentaries about film sound before. It's not something that's new. But one of the things I liked about this film is that there's a, the director, Midge Costin, is actually a sound person herself, and she's the one that directed the film. And the thing I like about it is oftentimes you'll get documentaries where someone is not part of the arena that they're in. And frequently that makes it helpful to us as audience members who also aren't that they're the window, you know, like in, in a good script. You have your new guy at the job so somebody can exposit all of the things that are supposed to happen there. And that's what the filmmaker often represents in those stories. In this case, though, the fact that Ms. Costin has been in this industry for a long time means that she knows how to talk about things because she's been exposed to them that your average documentarian wouldn't even think to ask. And so she has a much bigger lens on the world of sound. And I think the thing that was cool about it is oftentimes when you see docs about sound, they'll be focused on one thing you know, voiceover artists or Foley artists or whatever. This was a huge, sort of all-encompassing vision of sound. It goes through the history of the advent of sound. It talks about um, the ways in which it actually changed the history of movies. One of the things I thought was really interesting, there's a segment um, where they were talking about uh, the first film that George Lucas did uh, before he did Star Wars, uh, before he did American Graffiti, was THX 1138. That movie is a fascinating experiment. It's got amazing sound design. The thing is that movie did pretty terribly when it came out. And in some ways it would kind of, I don't want to say ruined Zoetrope Studios, but it was um, Coppola backed it and then the studio pulled money as a result of how poor it, ex it was executed. And as a result of him owing a lot of money because of that, that's the only reason he signed on to do The Godfather. So in a way, THX 1138's failure is the only reason that we have one of the most well-known films in history. 
and they kind of talked about that in the film and how a lot of it was the weird experimental stuff that they were doing in it. Wasn't THX uh, 1138, wasn't that his uh, student film at SC? Yeah, well, the, the original version of it was. They obviously expanded it because they wanted to do a, a bigger budget. I think the original probably didn't have, I would imagine it didn't have um, Robert Duvall, and I think that was when they decided to make it the feature. Um, but... But yeah, they expanded it. They spent a lot more money on it. And that's where the whole idea of, of Coppola taking on debt, because when that movie came out, they, the studio had originally said, we're going to give you this much money to, to develop films. Well, they pulled that. Coppola had already spent some of it. So it was him sort of like having to find a project to do to be able to pay off the debt that was created from THX. Anyway, long story short is um, there's a lot of fascinating stories like that in this doc. Um, and, uh, and the one person that I love that pops up in here is, um, I'm sure you know Ben Burt. He's the guy that's responsible for basically creating the entire aesthetic of the Star Wars sound universe, which is one of the most distinctive sound universes in the world. We recognize the sound of a lightsaber, the sound of a laser coming out of a ship. Um, he's responsible for all of that. If you go back and watch any of the Star Wars films, the first three or the prequel series, they all have multiple commentaries, and at least one is always Ben Burt. Those things are like a master class, and, and he's in this documentary, so you can kind of look at if those are the master class, those commentaries, this is kind of the textbook that goes with that master class. When is this being uh, released? It's going to be, I think it's the 25th, so it's uh, late this week. It's going to be, but that's only New York, LA. It's going to get a wider release from there. Um, I would have to assume we're going to see, because it's a documentary, we're going to be seeing a VOD release fairly soon after that. Um, I haven't heard word, but I'm just talking about specifically theatrical release now, so keep an eye out for it, I would say. There'll be just a few theaters in the uh, initial release in the major cities, and then it'll go to... Uh, Probably Amazon or, or Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. That's, that's my hope, yeah. Um, but regardless, even if it's a, a pay site, it's still worth tracking down because it's a really fascinating sure. doc. Um, so you want to dive into the physical media for the week? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going we're to end with a title that is beloved to both of us. Uh, it's a filmmaker that you have been a fan of for a long time and know quite a bit about. Um, but there are three titles we wanted to talk about this week. Uh, all three films are from the same company. It's AGFA, A-G-F-A. That stands for the American Genre Film Archive. And they're a really cool company. One of, the th one of their ethos is basically we want to make sure that all of the films that have been created make it to... Uh, subsequent release formats, right? So there have been movies that came out on 35 that were never released on anything else, things that came out on VHS and beta that never came to anything else, the things that have been released on DVD but never made it to Blu-ray, things like that, right? Um, their goal is to try and keep lost movies from remaining lost, dig them back up, give them the highest quality print that they can get from whatever the sources are, and then to put it out so people now can still find it. Um, and the, the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, I, I have not seen, of these three films, I have not seen two, but I have seen one <laughs> like three or four times, and uh, it's it leaves an imprint. It does. It? it really, really does. And I have a little bit of background on on some of the stuff that it goes along with that. With Ed Wood, he's of course uh, what you say notorious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. He's notorious, but also like notorious sometimes has a negative connotation. I do think that there's a there's certainly an unbridled passion to the work that he does, whether it's of a specific quality or not we can argue but you can't argue that there's not a level of passion that came from him for his work that's the thing that makes it distinctive is mm -hmm. the level of dedication that this guy had right. it was a uh, uh, complete incompetence and complete dedication. Right. You know. Yeah. There's not an ounce of cynicism in no, him. No. No. Yeah. He's, he's totally sincere. Yeah. In everything he does. So that'll be the third title we talk about. The first one I wanted to mention, I think, is really interesting, is a film called FX. And the reason I think that it's interesting is because this is kind of like the George Romero film that George Romero didn't make, meaning. 
basically everyone that he worked with in the in the arena, sort of the Pittsburgh area when he was coming up, is involved in this film in some way. Um, you'll recognize some of the names. Obviously, Joseph Pilato, he played the fantastic villain who had maybe the greatest death scene of all time in Day of the Dead, when the door opens and all the zombies go after his stomach and he's screaming at them as they're ripping him apart. It's maybe one of the great uh, deaths of all time. But Joe, Joe Pilato is in it. And then, of course, uh, Tom Savini, who anybody who knows anything about effects knows Tom Savini. Well, Tom Savini had a pretty good uh, death scene in uh, Dawn of the Dead. Too. Yes, he did. That's a good lots point. Of, lots of guts being torn out there, too. Yeah. And then uh, his uh, his assistants got revenge on him by casting him in From Dusk Till Dawn <laughs> and then gooping him up then because they all had to have him do it to them earlier in their career. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, let's see, who else? Oh, uh, John Harrison. He was, uh, I think he's both a composer and a, like a cinematographer and director. He did a lot of stuff, but he's working on the new Creep Show series. He worked on Tales from the Dark Side, the movie with Romero. So a lot of the names you're going to see on this title, which is from 1980. So it would have been before uh, Day of the Dead, but after Night and Dawn, around the same time that the titles like The Crazies and Martin, like all the people that he was working with around that time, those are the people we're talking about. And uh, don't forget, uh, children shouldn't play with dead things. What was that? I thought that was, was that that's, Ormsby? That's Ormsby Alan and Ormsby and Clark? And when I was looking at the, some Paul Schrader uh, stuff this week, I found out that uh, Ormsby had written Cat People, the, uh, that's right. the script. And uh, so I looked into Ormsby a little bit, and uh, I found, ended up, of course, on uh, uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. And there was a great quote I wrote down here that uh, it was I picked up off of, uh, maybe it was Rotten Tomatoes, 1973, uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. is like watching a George Romero ripoff directed by Ed Wood with a script scribbled by Joe Orton while he was ripped to the tits on poppers. You know what? Like, I don't know if that was intended to sound like an insult, but that would 100% make me watch a movie. Absolutely. There's no way I would have no, no, no. you got to see it. So. got to see it. But, uh, so anyway, so FX has some pretty cool uh, things to it. It has a documentary on it called After Effects, which is a documentary about the making of it. It has a commentary. It has a 4K scan on this from the Whoa. original 35mm negative. One of the things I'll note about all of them is, like, this is the best you're ever going to see any of these movies because in all likelihood you wouldn't have seen these movies. Like, these are movies that were going to disappear, or at best you were going to find in terrible versions on YouTube or something like that, right? They were sort of, they were one step from total obscurity. And Agfa thankfully sort of uh, grabbed them, you know, yanked them back, and, and really did a, a, a lot of good work on it. A lot of the people that are involved in these movies uh, appear on in documentaries and commentaries and stuff like that. So that's effects. That's a great one. The, ne the next one uh, is, it's called The Zodiac Killer. Uh, it is, yes, it's about Zodiac, just like uh, David Fincher's film Zodiac. The fascinating thing about this film, though, is uh, not, not that the film itself is not f fascinating, but the story behind the film is amazing. The filmmaker, his name is uh, Tom Hansen, is the director. He, uh, he decided while the killings were happening, this was made while Zodiac was still sort of at large. I mean, I know they never caught him, but this is at the point where killings were still happening and nobody knew what was going on. He decided... This Zodiac killer loves attention, right? He sends letters to the uh, to the newspapers. He wants people to know what he's doing and be scared. And so what he thought was, if, if this guy loves publicity so much, if I make a movie about the Zodiac killer, this guy's going to show up to watch it. 
right? So he literally made this film with the intent to screen it publicly <coughs> and try and catch the Zodiac Killer at one of the screenings. Lure him into yeah. the theater. Like they, they were sponsored by, I forget what, it was a motorcycle company that was a giveaway for a motorcycle. And the way that you would win is he would hand out lobby cards and the top said, I think the Zodiac Killer kills because, and then leave space, right? And you're supposed to write why you think he kills. And they had people who were supposedly handwriting experts sitting in a booth screening all of these. And they were going to pull people who they thought their handwriting looked like the Zodiac Killers. They're going to pull them out of the theater and interrogate them. That was this guy's plan. So this movie exists as sort of like the weirdest sort of activist anti-serial killer thing in the world. And it's this amazing artifact that sort of would have been lost if it weren't for Agfa. But I think that story is unbelievable. It's, un it's fantastic. That, is, it, uh, is it better than the movie? It, what's that? The story. Oh, the, uh, this is what I'll say. Uh, as we always say, film is subjective. Right? Yes, absolutely. It is not Ed Wood, but it is in the it's in throwing distance of Ed Wood work, right? Um, but the thing is, much like we talked about with Ed Wood's work, there is a love and a dedication to this project as well because you can't you couldn't have done this project with a, without dedication to do what he wanted to well, do which was like literally stop a real life serial killer yeah sincerity yeah is, absolutely is a key word for ed yeah. and uh, this sounds like the same uh, same arena yeah and one of the things i'll always say is I, I know there's a lot of people who sort of enjoy kitschy stuff like from uh, sci-fi original movies and the thing that's always bothered me about sci-fi original movies is they're they're aware that they're being bad and there's sort of a winking cynicism to that and it's always kind of insulted me. Because I'm like, you know what? There are genuinely bad people out there that are trying to make movies and making bad movies out of the love of their heart. Like, let's not belittle the work that they've done. No, Ed, Ed Wood released, uh, I forget, he directed, I think, seven, seven films, uh, seven or eight. Some are rather obscure. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the ones that are really well known, like Bride of the Monster and uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glenn or Glenda. And... Uh, those are those are well known, but he did some others too. And and just the idea of somebody dedicating themselves to releasing a film, financing, producing, directing, editing it, releasing it, shooting it, everything, and and how impossible that is. And those were released theatrically. Yeah, you know. And he was on. He was complete. He wasn't even a fringe guy. He was an outsider. Yeah, in, in an yeah. era when there were no outsiders. Yeah, when B studios think that your work is below their standards, that gives you a sense of what he was working with. And the other thing is, we forget now because right now we're literally recording things with cameras that are in our pockets. When you wanted to make a film on thirty-five millimeter film in the fifties or the sixties or the seventies, that was a huge undertaking just because of the physical things you had to acquire in order to make it happen. You know, so the amount of effort. So speaking of which, we're talking about Ed Wood already. Let's go ahead and move into oh. the film that you have seen multiple times, The Violent Years. The Violent Years. It's got some of the greatest taglines on the posters. Uh, Untamed Girls of the Pack Gang. I yeah. like that a lot. On the front of this one, it says, Girl Gang Wolf Packs on the Back Streets, Violence and Vice. <laughs> and teenage killers taking their thrills unashamed. Yeah, I like that it adds unashamed, you know? Yeah. Like, they weren't just taking their thrills. They were not embarrassed about it. They either. were unashamed. Like they were absolutely unashamed. There's a thrill girls of the highway. Yeah. And I mean, that was that, that was an art in itself, wasn't it? In the 60s and 70s was the, the world of the poster and the trailer selling a movie that maybe or definitely didn't deserve the credit that the poster and trailer were giving it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a scene in The Violent Years where they actually gang rape a man. Right, uh, and you know it's 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 incredible. Uh, it's on Lovers Lane in the middle of the day, by the way. 
and uh, they the four that is probably a continuity error, oh, right? Yeah. They didn't he have was it. known for those. They didn't have the uh, the day for night lens on, you know, whatever uh, uh, filter. But uh, yeah, they they pull this guy out of the car. They send it. They tie his girl up, take her clothes off, and tie her up. She still has her night, uh, you know, her slip on. But uh, they tie her up, put her in the back of the car, take the guy over into the bushes, and of course, in the, this is 1959, 50. When is it? 56. 56. Yeah. 56. So. It's not explicit by any means, but but you you get what's oh happening. yeah you know what's going to go on and uh, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, newspaper headline that flashes up right after that, but it's you know man attacked and man attacked by girl gang in lovers lane yeah was it the spinning newspaper that you get all the no, no no but that that shows up earlier I think yeah I was, you know we had that they, spinning was an extra effect one of my favorite classic dramatic effects yeah, was used yeah. to very big effect on the later Batman TV series which is where I think it kind of became a parody. Um, so we should note, when we say it's an Ed Wood film, it's an Ed Wood written film. It's right. actually directed by William Morgan. But the thing is, the way that Ed Wood writes, it doesn't matter who directs it. There's still a sense of that bizarre magic right. that is Ed Wood coming the, through. The, the direction, the actual shooting of this film is uh, better than an Ed Wood movie by a few degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's an camera angles that Ed Wood wouldn't, wouldn't have tried for right. and things like that. But... But the writing is, it's Ed, it's Ed all the way. Yeah. I mean, it really is. For sure. And uh, it's so identifiable that it's just, you listen to it. If you close your eyes and put it on and just listen to the, the dialogue, you'd say, oh, that sounds like Ed yeah. Wood. Yeah, so, close your eyes and you can imagine the clunky shooting if you, oh, yeah. <laughs> if you just yeah. keep your eyes yeah. shut. Yeah. Um, so this is actually, this disc is a good opportunity to talk about some of the cool stuff that AGFA puts on as far as special features. Because one of the things that's on here, which is fantastic, is the commentary track, right? Obviously, Ed Wood is long past Ed, on. Ed, Violent Years um, has a commentary track? It does. Oh, that's man. the thing that's amazing about American Genre Film Archive is they're like, if we're going to dig this movie up and we're going to bring it back to life, <laughs> we're going to make sure that people treat it with the respect we feel it deserves and the amount of effort we put into it, right? So check out who's on this commentary track. Obviously, they didn't they didn't uh, summon Ed Wood from beyond the right. grave, but they did the next best thing. Uh, Frank Henenlotter, the director of yeah. Basket Case, right? And right. man who is beloved of exploitation cinema, not only because of what he made, but because he cares a lot about preserving it himself. He's on the commentary, along with Ed Wood biographer Rudolph Gray. Right. So, like, if you're not going to get Ed Wood, this is as close as you're going to get to the people who should be talking about this movie. Well, I met Rudolph him. Gray when a friend of mine had Ed Wood's trunk. Uh, I mentioned that to you before. Yes, I, I was hoping we were going to segue into that story. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, he had acquired, he was a, a dealer in uh, movie memorabilia, uh, vintage posters and, and things of that nature. And he had acquired Ed Wood's trunk, which was about the size of a footlocker. It wasn't a huge trunk, but it was, you know, uh, two by three or something like that. And it was absolutely loaded with uh, candid sh photos and... Uh, Posters. So, in other words, in Angora sweaters. Is oh, that what yeah. you mean by well, there were, there were shots, you know, the little uh, uh, brownie camera shots, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. small small pictures, right. but, but uh, taken on the set of Plan 9 from Outer Space that, were, that showed the whole set and all its minuscule glory. You know. Which, by the way, the sets are so small they could fit in a picture that Absolutely. tiny. Absolutely, and, and uh, shots of Vampira and Tor Johnson, and Ed had cut out of the paper every ad that ever was published that he could get his hands on oh, for his man. films, even from the Chinese news, China, Chinese news, language newspaper published in uh, L.A. Yeah. And it was, you know, the, the, she, the picture, but it was all in Chinese and, and uh, for Plan 9 and uh, Bride of the Monster. And, and it was, 
it was an incredible thing. He also, one thing he had in there was that I, I, I told him, he finally sold it. And I forget who he sold it to, but he sold it for $10,000, and he probably was worth more. I think Tim Burton probably would have bought it for more than that. Yeah, no kidding. Well, ironically, that's more than some of his budgets for his films, I would imagine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But uh, in there he had a list, a, a, a list that Ed had made up of every piece of erotic fiction that he'd written, all under pseudonyms, for all the men's magazines. Yeah. And all there was the, a lot of those, if I remember correctly. A right? lot. There was a lot. It was like seven or eight uh, single-space type pages of uh, the title, uh, the name, the, the month and uh, the year and month of the men's magazine, the title of the magazine, the title of the story, and the pseudonym under which it was, it was uh, the pen name under which it was written. Right. So somebody could go back and collect all these articles, and there would be all Ed's Wood's erotic writings of the 50s and 60s. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, you've got to... You got to make a, a copy of this, if nothing else, when you sell this thing. Yeah. Make a copy of this, and, and you can put out a little catalog later or collect these, and, and I'm sure they're all <laughs> available, public domain. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, no, no kidding. And that that by itself, you know, I can't believe how many people would probably buy that if they had a, a one place with everything of his collected, all of his writings, you know? Right. I, I made it. There was, uh, the, there's people that collect men's magazines. They're sort of the nudie, cutie magazines from the... Uh, 50s and 60s, uh, prior to really uh, uh, Penthouse and Hustler. I, I think when didn't uh, Playboy starts in the 50s, I believe. Right. But, okay. So this would have been this would have been before it was mainstreamed. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the only the only more shall we say sophisticated magazine that dealt with the same subjects was Playboy at the time. Right. And there were a lot of grade B and grade Z magazines. And uh, I looked some up. There was Adam and Gent. Rogue, Escapade, uh, Jaguar, I especially like that title, and Rascal and Cavalier also. Every single one of those magazines could also <laughs> fill it as an X-Men character, interestingly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's, yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, We're going to start a, a form an X, a triple X-Men team Gent, named after all of those magazines. Gent and Knight meet Dude and Jaguar. Yeah, you know. triple X-Men. Or yeah. as they would say, Jaguar. <laughs> you know, whatever. So... Uh, well, one of the things, uh, the last thing I want to ma make mention of before we segue into the film that you brought was the, uh, another cool thing that the American Genre Film Archive does on all of these discs, which is fantastic. I think it's almost all of these discs, is um, because you've put down your hard-earned money to buy this one film, they feel like that you deserve to get another one. And so what they do is they give you two discs, or they give you two films uh, uh, when you buy. So like with the violent years, you get the violent years with all those bonus features, but you also get the bonus movie Anatomy of a Psycho from 1961. Absolutely. Right? Fantastic. Um, and that's, again, that's a, the other one was a 4K print. This is a 2K scan of the 35mm print, so that's going to look fantastic. I have never heard the title, Anatomy of a Psycho. Yeah. I, I, it, it, like, it's one of those titles where it's close enough to several things that I think I know what it is, and then I look it up and go, oh, no, no, it's not that. No. I don't never, know what never, this never is. Never seen this. Never yeah. seen this. Um, for the Zodiac Killer, this is my favorite one, right? <laughs> is It's about the Zodiac Killer, so they want to pair it with something that's about serial killers, right? So they pair it with 1977 another son of Sam right because as we all know Sam had multiple sons multiple sons big family yeah. big family so and again another 2K scan from the 35mm print so in all likelihood the transfer that you're getting on this disc is the best that film has ever or will ever look right right so well, the, the, another son of Sam is is uh uh, 35 print. Who knew? Who would have guessed? Yeah, exactly. Who would have thought it ever reached 35? Like it ever bumped up past 16? Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, so that's um, that's the American Genre Film Archives. We're going to be talking about some of their other stuff too, because they were also kind enough to uh, donate copies of their films to the uh, UT Physical Media uh, Library, right? Which is the project that we undertook to try and make sure that uh, younger people still recognize physical media as not only a good thing, but it, sometimes a superior thing. Like sure. sometimes the best place you're going to get a movie, Absolutely. and oftentimes, especially nowadays, the only place you're going to get a movie. I dare you to go on streaming and try and find another Son of Sam somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it, I've another I've never heard of before. And, yeah, and one last thing about Ed uh, Wood. Uh, when I was uh, working in uh, film in Los Angeles, I, I knew a guy who had a, a small, a teeny tiny studio. Uh, uh, it was on Yale. It was on what was it Yale Street? Can't remember now. Anyway, it was very small. He, he was an old time B movie actor and producer named Lucky Brown. And Lucky had, I was down there was talking, he mentioned Ed Wood, and I said, oh, did you ever meet him? And he said, yes. I said, he said, I went up to Ed's place one time, and he was living in a motel. And uh, I knocked on the door, and Ed answered the door, uh, smoking a cigar with his mustache and everything else, and, and totally in drag, complete drag, with Angora sweater and the wig and everything and said, uh, come on in, uh, I'm just playing cards with some of the boys. And they were playing poker, and Ed was in complete drag playing poker, smoking a cigar, and that's, he said, it's the only time I ever met him. I said, well, that's enough, isn't it? Right, what else, what, what yeah. else were you going to get? Other Great than, story, uh, you know. Yeah. So, but, uh, and uh, you know what, uh, people talk about this a lot, you know, they talk about his, his films and the questionable quality of his films, but one of the things that I love about Ed Wood and about the circle of people that he worked with is their inclusiveness. Like, try to think about in that era, that would Ed would have been able to go out anywhere else to be himself around a group of people and not have been ostracized because of who he was and what he liked, right? Mm -hmm. He was able to sit in that room being the person that he was, being comfortable with who he was, and all the people that worked with him were just comfortable with it, right? They understood who he was as a person, and so the rest of that stuff didn't matter to them. And I feel like, in a way, if you watch some of his films, though there's obviously some disturbing uh, subject matter to them, <laughs> there's also a sense of acceptance that the, uh, not only the characters but the actors and the people behind the scenes have about uh, people who had alternative lifestyles well before that was something that anybody was talking about. Well, they were in Hollywood, and uh, uh, these people that worked with him knew that the only way they were ever going to show up on the screen was if they worked with somebody like Ed, uh, who would get them on the screen strictly because of his his uh, tenacity, you know, his uh, just this dedication to making movies, uh, and they're they're something to behold. If you've never seen an Edward movie, you know, you just just watch Plan 9 from Outer Space and it's there's something absolutely charming about it, even though it's dreadful, you know, it's right. it's unbelievably awful, uh, but it's not really awful. It's uh, there's something in it that's uh, and it's uh, at the end of Tim Burton's movie Edward, you know, he's, he says um, um, uh, you know, this is the movie, this is the one I'll be remembered for. Mm -hmm. Wide-eyed and and idealistic and it's true. He's that's the one he's remembered for, but he was uh, he was the real deal. I mean, that's why I think people are attracted to his films, and attracted to him as a person, even though he's, he's a, it's as fringe as fringe can be. You know? Yeah. There's no, no absolutely. Yeah. And um, so you tell you what, we'll, we'll take a quick break. Uh, we're going to a music break just real quick, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the physical title that you have, which will take us right into our big conversation about the big picture. Absolutely.
and we are back. Uh, so we just talked about a few of my physical media titles. You had a recent physical media acquisition, which will take us into our big conversation. What was that? Well, <clears throat> we had talked about uh, a director that I'd never really looked at before, uh, Richard Franklin. Was an Australian director uh, who died. How old was he when he died? He was in his forties or fifties or. Yeah, I would. Say, I think he was. Yeah, it would have been. I want to say late thirties or forties. It was well before he should have. Before right. He should have gone. He was a competent director. There's no doubt about that. I mean, probably the one that uh, that I looked up that I did watch and I got a Australian import uh, DVD or Blu-ray, I should say, and uh, it was called Road Games with Stacey Keach, Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's sort of a, well, it's, uh, we're going to talk about Hitchcock Alakite, so it was, uh, uh, you know, it's there. I mean, there's no doubt. It has been called a rear window on the road uh, right. because he's a trucker. He's a trucker who always, his tagline or his, his standard line is, I, I'm, I'm a man who drives a truck. I'm not really a trucker. I'm a man who drives a truck, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, he spouts poetry all the time, and he uh, plays road games when he's driving along, and he imagines the people that he's passing, what kind of lives they lead, and who they are, because he's always looking down into their car from mm -hmm. the cab. And there's a serial killer on the loose out on the Australian outback there on the big road, but the long stretch where there's nothing at all. And uh, he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis, and, uh, and then it's a, a game of cat and mouse with this, uh, with this serial killer who's driving a green van. And of course, it turns out that it's, it's, it's sort of like, um, it, it's not, it, it's, there's elements of the lady vanishes because there's all these other characters who have, that he runs into that have different motivations for assuming that he is a serial killer and everything moves towards that conclusion. Mm -hmm. The cops end up thinking he's the one and he's, so he's trying to outrun everybody. And so it's a, there's a wrong man thing. Of course, yeah, yeah. which yeah. is in any Hitchcock, uh, well, let's say Hitchcock homage, there's always someone who didn't do anything wrong, but is going to be accused of what has been right. done wrong. Yeah. And, and there's, it's good, it's a good film. And of course, on the Australian uh, import that I got, there's no extra, there's no uh, bonus features. Yeah. It's a good copy. I think it could be, there could be a better transfer coming up and I think there is one coming up. It's uh, it's going to be released, and I can't remember who's going to release it, but it's coming out in the next month or two. I was say, I'm sure it's probably one of those great boutique labels like Vinegar Syndrome or someplace like that. Um, they're really good with that, too. Like, when they put a good print of it out, they also put all kinds of great special features on it, which is the other thing we, don't, we talk about in the physical media section is that's the other thing you can get on these that you don't get when you watch something streaming. You can see the movie, and that's great. But all of the insight that you get from all this other stuff we're talking about is never included. You know, you don't ever get any of those things because how do you, you know, how do you stream special features, right? Right. Well, <clears throat> Jamie Lee Curtis was. This is right after she had done, done Halloween, and she was sort of uh, had become a hot uh, name. You know, right. Uh, and but she was still sort of a scream queen too, because she was doing like prom night, and it was like a, a short window before I, she did Trading Places, I think. The which director, is the one that, Richard Franklin, met her on the set of The Fog. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and because uh, he was, he had been also he had been to University of Southern California Film School, and he knew Carpenter and, and all the all the guys who went there, and he was friends with him, and he went on the set and he met Jamie Lee Curtis and asked her if she'd be in this movie, and along with Stacy Keach, so it's a good cast. Yeah, and they're really good together. The two of them have a great have great dialogue and great interaction with each other. Yeah, uh, that's to me that was there's a few scenes between them that were really the high point of the whole movie. Yeah. 
Or there's a sequence where there's a fantastic car crash in an alley that uh, should not be forgotten either. That is a, <laughs> yeah. an ama- that was in the day, you know, there's that whole documentary about exploitation films, which was like these maniacs that would literally go out and almost kill each other doing stunts because there was no oversight for any of that stuff. And this is one of those movies that's featured in that documentary talking about, you know, they literally just go out, buy a couple of cars they knew they were going to wreck and then do insane things with stunt yeah, there's a There's when he's driving down a progressively narrow alley chasing the killer right in his truck and of course it gets so narrow that the doors on, on both sides are scraping up against the brick walls mm-hmm. and uh, there's overhangs that he has to break through or break part of the truck off and at the same time there's a cop uh, got, somebody plays a cop obviously a stuntman crawling under the truck trying to disentangle some wires and he gets tangled up in these wires that have been caught on the axle and you look at it and you realize you know like this is this is not special effects. This is somebody's doing this, and it looks terribly dangerous. My God! Oh yeah, you know it. It's well, and we know it was dangerous because I think if you watch the documentary, more than one person died during the shooting of these films. <laughs> yeah. Not that yeah. film particularly, yeah. but like the making of these movies. Surprise me. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did want to note too is, aside from Franklin, who is not just a Hitchcock acolyte, but actually a Hitchcock like an academic. Like he studied Hitchcock. He was one of the people that interviewed Hitchcock. He would go around and do screenings of his films at colleges and stuff like that. But aside from him, the other creator of um, of Road Games is the writer Everett DeRoche, who is he has a really interesting story because he started. He's an American. He moved to Australia. He worked in a lot of like Australian television shows, like uh, Chopper Squad and stuff like that. It was like, you know, cop stuff on TV. Right. But he was one of the first ones to realize uh, this market of what we were talking about, the exploitation. And so he wrote a lot of the early titles. He wrote Patrick. He wrote Long Weekend, which I think is a fantastic and still unfortunately underseen film over here. Um, he did One More Minute in Harlequin, but probably the one that he's most well known for is Road Games. And um, But he has had numerous films I mean up through God Jamie Blanks made a film of his in the early 2000s so he's been working on writing um, horror film in Australia even though he's an American a displaced American for like 35 40 years wow so yeah so he's a really interesting it's interesting to watch his perspective of what Australia is because he doesn't come from there so he has both an outsider's perspective but also now because he's been there 40 years it is also an insider's perspective so that's that interesting dichotomy I think well I was I saw another Franklin film called Cloak and Dagger oh I love it yeah and it was it was good I I was as I was watching it I was saying you know I, I really don't care much for the score <clears throat> the musical score, mm-hmm. uh, but it was it was okay. I watch, I watched when I was watching Road Games. Of course, uh, I said the same thing. There's parts of it that are good. There's parts of it that just don't fit the score. I looked that up, and it was written by Brian May, who is not the Queen guy, right? Not the other guy who's who's since deceased, and uh, he'd worked in for a long time in Australian film, and he, and I looked back, and he'd made the soundtrack, the, the scores for. Mad Max 1 and, and 2, The Road Warrior, mm-hmm. and several other, I think, uh, 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 it's the, jeez, uh, another one that escapes me right now, not Breaker Morant, but the other... Uh, oh, the Breaker Breaker? The no, no, no. Oh, no, uh, that's Chuck Norris. It was a, a, a military thing with Mel Gibson. What oh, no, not Gallipoli, because that would have been Peter Weir. Yeah. I don't know. That's a There's good another one. There's another one. Well, anyway. Oh, I don't. Be- I, it's not that I don't believe. No, no. I, I mean, don't I, remember. I, 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 I was, there is another one. Damn it! Remember it, but I can't, so I won't. 
Um, I'm going to go to the phones. Call it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's with all our phones out there. Um, but yeah, so this actually is a good segue into what our big picture conversation is. I think Richard Franklin's a good place to start because, like we said, he was a Hitchcock scholar. So his films, and in fact, even Cloak and Dagger is to a degree um, some level of, of sort of a Hitchcock. Uh, vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Technically, it was a remake of a different story. Uh, the writer, uh, Tom Holland, who made Fight Night and Child's Play, he wrote that script. And that script is his sort. He said it was, uh, I did a modern day video game version of Cor a remake of Cornell Woolrich's The Window, the Bobby Driscoll film. Right, right. Um, but, I mean, if you watch Cloak and Dagger, you can see, like you said, the innocent man in over his head story that is the basis of almost every Hitchcock story. Even the missing finger on the hand, which is thir 39 and, steps. As you can say, and those two characters, the, uh, the elderly characters, those are both Hitchcock actors that are in that film right. as well. They've popped up in his movies. So, yeah, it was John McIntyre from uh, Psycho. Yeah. Yep. And, and was what the his wife though? Yeah, I can't remember which film she appeared in, but I remember when I saw it, my mom. I was like, what ten when I first saw it? And I love that movie. She was the one that recognized that these were actors that from you know films of her generation. So I thought it was a really interesting foldover. But so we've got Road Games and Cloak and Dagger, both of which are clearly uh, Hitchcock influenced, and then we move into the most connective tissue that a director could ever have to Alfred Hitchcock, which is he made Psycho too. Mm -hmm. So, a daunting task, right? Like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's how many years later? It was the mid-80s, It right? was 82, I right. think. Uh, yeah. yeah. So we're talking, you know, uh, almost 20 years, not quite 20 years, but in that ballpark of... Well, 20, of a little over 20. Oh, wait, yeah, that's right. It's psycho 60. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking over 20, 20 and change years. Um, they're making a sequel to a film that most people would feel, A, shouldn't be sequelized, and B, how are you ever going to measure up to the impact that that first film had? He's reteaming, or not reteaming, I guess it was around the same time as uh, Cloak and Dagger writer Tom Holland. So it's Tom Holland and Richard Franklin working together on Psycho 2. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I was shocked. I mean, I'm lucky because I have the, um, I have the distance of time. I didn't see it when it came out. I would have been five, and that probably wouldn't have been a good thing for me to do. <laughs> um, but having watched them in order, there's this huge gap. But in a way, that movie is a very loving sequel that recognizes the the brilliance of the first one and doesn't try to top it it tries to homage it properly and be a sequel without i feel like trying too much to take away from what worked in the original well i think it it gives anthony perkins uh, uh a kind of license that that it, it's psycho depends so much on his performance you mm -hmm. know i mean really if you watch the uh the, the van sant uh, what uh, the remake mm -hmm. that was scene for scene the reason that it doesn't work is largely because of Vince Vaughn, and and uh, other there's other things that make it not work. I think, but but uh, Perkins is the one that just makes that movie sing. Yeah. you know, as far as the performances go, and Psycho Two is, it's him. I mean, he's the one. The the other actors are, are Meg Tilly's okay. You know, mm -hmm. she's fine, but uh, but he really is is there. Yeah, he's there as a, his performance is really there. Yeah. And, and it, I think one of the things that's funny about it, too, is that um, it, it has a strange sympathy for Perkins, maybe more than the first one did. And I would love to credit the director and the writer with thinking, here's how we sort of flip the script on it. But truth is, they just needed to land Anthony Perkins or they weren't going to be able to make this movie. Right. And what Anthony Perkins was wanted was another shade to play with Norman other than the one that we already know and that was sort of where the genius came in is they figured out here's a way to sell Anthony Perkins on this by giving him another level but also sort of deepening the mythology of the series itself right I, I ran across a, a review of uh, Psycho 2 
that came out about the time that the, that the movie was released. And it, it said that Psycho 2 is better than Psycho. And I was like, no, 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 no. They're two completely different things. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and it would be pretty hard to uh, to top Psycho uh, to the original, I think. Yeah, that's a that's a bold statement. That <clears throat> seems like the kind of thing you want to get on a poster with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a blurb right yeah. up there on the poster. Yeah. I think that uh, uh, the... Uh, I, I saw Psycho in 1960 when it came out. Uh, I was... How old was I? I was uh, 14 years old. Uh, you were five, I was 14. Oh, no, I was five when the second one came the out. Oh, <laughs> sorry, that's right. So you're not, you're not, I was yeah, you're not negative 20, yeah, approximately. Yeah, you're negative 20, okay. Uh, so I saw it, and uh, I was, you know, I, it, it, as a 14-year-old, it totally freaked me out. And nobody had ever seen anything like that before, and especially the trick that he pulled off with, with uh, uh, killing off the main, uh, the main star actress right. with four, 45 minutes into the film. And audiences had absolutely no idea where, what was going to happen next because yeah. it left them dangling. Well, and he was the first one to institute the rule that if you didn't get in at the beginning of the movie, you had to wait until the next showing started that you could right. walk in. Because that was a fairly common thing at the time. You just go in whenever, and they didn't make you only stay for one screening like they do now. So you could come in 20 minutes to the end, watch, and then loop back around Which and watch Everybody always did. Right. You know, that was a standard way to do it. And it was really double features. People would go in at any time, sit down, and sit through a, a half feature, then a full feature, and then the other half. And right. this typical line was, oh, this is where we came in. Right. You get up, and, you get up and leave. Yeah, yeah. get up and leave. I've and seen it all now. It was standard, you know. Uh, and uh, there were also cartoons and, and serial chapters and uh, yeah. comedies and all that. Yeah, it was a full-on day's excursion. It was. Yeah. It was a full day of entertainment, really. So, um, all right, so Richard Franklin's the one we started with because he's right. like an acolyte, and he made a sequel. But uh, so who are some of the other acolytes? Like, if, if you had to pick the first one that you can think of as like, oh, this is obviously well, Brian De Palma. Through, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's the one I think probably most people think of immediately um, just because I feel like <coughs> he, he kind of pioneered the idea of sort of exploring, and I know he didn't look at it in this way, but I kind of feel like it's what happened is um, what would a Hitchcock movie look like with modern technology and the ability to have an R-rated film, which is Hitchcock never really did up until, was it Frenzy, I think, was the, was the only film he ever made where he wasn't sort of locked in by uh, very strict studio system rules. Right. Um, and so one of the things Brian De Palma did was explore, there was a lot of darkness in Hitchcock stuff. I can bring that more to the surface. He had to make it symbolic, and he had to sort of bury it. And I feel like De Palma well, was one of the ones that did that. The, the actual uh, violence, uh, on-screen violence, was amped up mm -hmm. with De Palma. And... The sex and the nudity and, I mean, my gosh, uh, uh, Dress to Kill. Yeah. You know? Yeah, Dress to Kill, Body Double. Uh, yeah. Body Double. All, and uh, Dress to Kill has a great shower scene. I think there's even a shower scene in, uh, in Body Double, isn't there, at the beginning? I was no, just saying, I think it blowout. Right, blowout. Blow yeah, blow has a shower. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing is that a lot of his films, even ones that don't feel particularly Hitchcocky in films like Carrie in them, uh, there is still, uh, I, I feel like you maybe would call it like a... A, a playful visual aesthetic. Uh, one of the things that I think draws people to Hitchcock young, uh, in their young cinematic uh, appreciation lives is that Hitchcock is so transparently a director in the sense that you can see Hitchcock as a director in his movies that I think when people are just learning the idea of uh, filmmakers having a visual identity, 
he's one of the easiest to identify, you know, and because there's a playfulness, uh, almost everything he has has some some level of a gimmick. You know, there's the um, there's the single roving camera in rope, or there's the um, there's the fantastic sequence on the um, carousel in Strangers on a Train. You know, there's, he really loved the idea of just using technology and taking it to the nth degree that you can with it. And I feel like De Palma does that in certain ways with other stuff. He loves that with the split screen. Um, he, he finds ways to sort of um, toy with the new technologies that weren't really at Hitchcock's disposal when he was making films. A lot of the roving camera and uh, 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 point of view mm -hmm. of roving camera, that's the museum scene in, uh, in uh, uh, Dress to Kill. Right, so the uh, pickup seduction scenes, yep. are uh, and 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 really telling stories without dialogue. Uh, you know, there's long stretches of De Palma where there's no dialogue at all, but he's telling the story effectively, which is Hitchcock. Yeah, all the way. Yep, and um, it's interesting that you brought the idea of the, the the museum sequence up and the long roving shots because I feel like that segues into another filmmaker who is inarguably not only influenced by Hitchcock but also I feel like in some ways carried the mantle for a little while right after Hitchcock died of making similar films who is Dario Argento uh -huh. um, because Dario Argento uh, was it the sequence I'm trying to is it, is it the bird with the crystal plumage where you see the death that happens is it in the museum I think <coughs> it's, it's the art, 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 yeah, art right, gallery right the gallery yeah. yeah which is very similar in some ways not to the events of what we were just talking about uh, with the museum scene but in its execution is very similar yeah and there's a slight wrong man theme, theme mm -hmm. in uh, Bird of the Crystal Plumage also yeah I was surprised to find out that Bird of the Crystal Plumage I think that was was that his first solo directing job yeah yeah he had written stuff before that but that was the first time he directed right. a feature he, he film he written yeah. part of, uh, of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West <laughs> yeah that was a fascinating team wow. him and Bertolucci and uh, yeah it was a strange uh, writing team but. Un un unusual uh yeah, and Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and then a movie that I watched uh, this last week that I had not seen of his before was um, uh, not Four Flies in Gray Velvet. It was uh, the other one. Bro uh, the, oh, damn. The Cat of Nine Tails? Cat of Nine Tails, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, with uh, Carl Malden and right. James Franciscus. Yeah. And uh, it, to me, it was it was, it was was okay, but it, Bird of the Crystal Plumage is really good. It's shocking that someone can come out of the gate with their first film being that. Yeah. It's really impressive. Um, another thing we should note, uh, because I mentioned Dario Argento and I was going to bring up Mario Bava, who literally has a film called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is clearly an, um, a reference, but uh, also Blood and Black Lace, which kind of began the giallo uh, movement. I think in some ways, once Hitchcock stopped making, uh, because he passed away, stopped making the psycho thrillers that he was making, I in some ways feel like... The Giallo filmmakers, the Italian filmmakers, were actually the ones that stepped in and filled that void until people like Brian De Palma came along. They were the ones making, you know, it was films about, um, you know, handsome detectives and women in beautiful clothes uh, having these, you know, um, windswept adventures across the globe. I mean, that's literally a lot of what Hitchcock was doing. And The Man Who Knew Too Much, that was a, you know, very similar plot right, to that. Right. And so I think the Giallos in some way are sort of the legitimate heirs to Hitchcock, and then I think at a certain point it splits into, you have your more mainstream sort of psychosexual thrillers a la Brian De Palma and Joe Esterhaas, but then I also think Giallo influenced slasher films equally. So there's this fascinating sort of bifurcation of the, you would call it, I guess, the highbrow and the lowbrow split of Hitchcock to Giallo, then to them. You know? Right, well, you have a split there with even with Bava and uh, the uh, person who took over his mantle was his son, Lamberto Bava. Right. And uh, he goes into the uh, sort of the low-grade 
slasher uh, Jalo uh, areas uh, more than Bob. actually uh, uh, Bob was a was a, an influence on so many people mm -hmm. and so many directors and uh, Argento is really influenced you know by by Bob and Argento seems to go um, to a, a certain point and then then sort of collapses I think yeah you know he he reaches a peak with Suspiria. Uh, Inferno is his next film, and it's good, but it's like, uh, you know, not, nothing like Suspiria. And then it's just like a downward spiral. I don't think he's made a good movie since. It's been, I mean, there are, I feel like there have been, if he's floundering around, floundering around in the sea, there have been points where I think his head comes above water. There are opera, films, maybe a little bit. Opera, I liked Trauma a bit. I even think that there are inspired moments in other films. I think that there are some pretty fantastic stuff in Stendhal Syndrome. Uh -huh. um, and then obviously the, a film that's germane to this, I don't think is a great film, but it's worth talking about, which is Do You Like Hitchcock? Is the TV movie he made. I mean, like, you can't get any more transparent about your love of Hitchcock than literally right. making a movie where that's sort of central to the plot, you know? Um, but one of, the, one of the people that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago who I don't think we would necessarily talk about as being directly influenced by him did make one hugely, uh, um, I guess you would say, Hitchcock-esque film as a writer is Paul Schrader, who worked with Brian De Palma to create Obsession. Right. I don't think you could argue that there's a film more influenced by a very specific Hitchcock film than Obsession was influenced by Vertigo. I hate to admit, I have not seen Obsession. So that's like an assignment this week for me. <laughs> yeah. Report back. Yeah. I want a 400 words on my desk. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about Obsession is that's one of those, you know, there's been that long-running argument between Roman Polanski and Robert Town about the end of Chinatown, right? And how Robert Town still thinks, to this day, still feels like that ending's not the right ending, my ending was right, um, there's an interesting argument between uh, Brian De Palma and, Ra and, and uh, Schrader, because Schrader wrote the script. There's apparently an entire third act of the movie that takes place years after the other two pieces of the film, and De Palma basically just tossed it and ended it where he ended it, said it was a stronger ending, and they've always sort of been complete disagreement about it. But it's an interesting, it is 100% influenced by Vertigo in the sense that it is a story about a man who loses uh, a loved one in his life and then years later meets someone who looks very similar to the person that he lost and gets into a relationship with them, kind of obsessed with them because of how much they appear like the person that he lost. And so you can't help but draw the absolute parallels between uh, Vertigo and this. There's no detective element in this one in the same way that there's, he's not a detective in the story. Right. But um, but there is that still, that same like uh, trying to replace that uh, emotional center that you have in your life with another person, even though you logically know it's not them, you still have this weird psychological attachment to the idea that you could sort of make them that person. Well, uh, uh, with Vertigo and Hitchcock, he absolutely does replace completely. Mm -hmm. That's That's what makes it kind of uh, almost impossible and it's disturbing at the same time but uh, you know you realize in Vertigo that <clears throat> our main character has made love to the first woman mm -hmm. the second woman is uh, spoilers here I guess so you can you know if well, you haven't gotten to it yet. if you haven't got seen Vertigo yeah uh, tough luck so the second woman is in fact really the first woman mm -hmm. in reality and he may at some point in the film he makes love to her again but he doesn't even realize that it's the original woman. Right. That's incredible. Think about it. You know, think about uh, actually physically coupling with someone, and then a year later doing it again with the same woman. You'd have to know. You'd have to know. Right. And so and, that speaks to the sort of the the ironclad sort of psychology of this person that they're somehow able to like block that out or to not the you know? obsession has taken over completely. Yeah. To the point where they've blo blocked it out. 
It's the same as uh, Louis Buñuel with uh, that obscure object of desire, where the man is so, uh, the older man is so intent on consummating his relationship with this woman he's obsessed with that he doesn't even realize it's played by two different actresses. Right. Exactly. You know, and they look completely different. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we even talked about the idea that clearly David Lynch is influenced by Hitchcock mm. in this, the the uh, use of the the doppelganger as, as an external and, representation, and right? Lost Highway, yeah, yeah. And I mean, literally anything. Twin Peaks is doppelganger. I mean, like yeah. you throw a rock in a David uh, David Lynch uh, biography, and then you could find two people there. That's right. Um, there's one I think that's kind of interesting because it's really only two titles, both within the same year, that are I feel like clearly influenced by Hitchcock. But he has said he likes Hitchcock along with many other directors, which is John Carpenter. Right. Um, you would be out of your mind not to recognize the influence Hitchcock had on Halloween, um, all the way down to literally naming characters in the story after, you know, the Dr. Loomis is named after Sam Loomis from the film, right. and also he cast the daughter of Janet Lee in his movie. So it's clear that there's connective tissue there, but also in the way he plays with his audience. He, he loves to do the same thing that Hitchcock used to do, which is the sort of that Cassandra complex, right? Where he gives you enough information for you to know that someone's in danger, but they don't, so that you're the one that's suffering rather than the character, because the character doesn't yet know that they're in danger. And, 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 he, just and you're screws. watching the frame. You're watching everything around the character. Mm -hmm. You're looking at the doorways. You're looking at the windows. Right. And because you're waiting. You're waiting. As an audience, you're waiting to see something. Yeah. And and that's suspense. Yeah, know? absolutely. And, and it's, uh, it's one of the reasons why I feel like he's definitely, if we don't want to call him an acolyte, because like I said, there's only two films, the other which I'll mention in a second. But if not an acolyte, then certainly someone who continued the study and execution of what it was that Hitchcock was doing. You know, with the, I think it was Roger Ebert that uh, used the quote that, um, like Alfred Hitchcock, uh, John Carpenter uh, knows how to play his audience like a piano. I think it's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's ironic because he's also a musician. So one thing, I, I watched a John Carpenter movie I had never seen. This week, because we I knew we were going to talk mention him. Mm -hmm. I watched Ghosts of Mars, ah. which is like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm it's, one of very few apologists for that film. Really, it's not. I don't think it's a good film. Yeah, I just enjoy it. So let, let me clarify okay, that. Okay, okay. I'm not saying it's a great movie. No. <laughs> I'm saying I there are very few John Carpenter movies I don't love, um, whether they deserve it or not. <laughs> um, but the other the other uh, Carpenter film I was going to mention is Someone's Watching Me, the TV movie he did the same year. Was it Lauren Hutton? I want to say. Uh, it's the first film that he made with his, uh, I would assume at the time, soon-to-be wife, uh, Adrian, Adrian Barbeau. Adrian Barbeau. Yeah. Um, and it's a TV movie basically about a guy with a high-powered, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, not binoculars, but a telescope, uh, telescope yeah. across from uh, a high-rise apartment that Lauren Hutton lives in, and he sends her gifts, and he's watching her and sort of stalking her. And it's very sort of rear window meets psycho. So that's also hugely influential. Well, his body double rear window with a tele. He has a telescope, and he's looking at the, the neighbors. Right, uh, exactly, know, yeah. So uh, so anyway, those are that's pretty much everybody I had on my list as far as the acolytes go. Um, so as we start to wrap up, I know I wanted to mention something real quick that is happening on UT campus uh, in since it's the holiday season. On October 28th, it's a Monday night at 6 in the Reeves Theater, they are screening one of my favorite um, zombie films of all time, Pontypool. Uh, it is a very unconventional, very fun horror movie. And I will be doing a quick intro, and then I'll be doing a conversation afterwards. So if you're on campus at the time, it doesn't cost anything. It's a free screening. Uh, we'd love to have you there. Because the pizza. Yes, that's right. Pizza. I didn't want to tell them about the pizza because <laughs> I didn't want that to be the reason they showed up. I want if people are there, I want to assume that it's because they love me. But if they show up 
with, for the pizza, they'll they'll be rewarded by watching the movie and listening to you. Yes, and know that if you eat pizza, we will not let you leave until the movie's <laughs> over. So that's one of the rules. Oh, yeah, so, that, uh, so that'll be happening on October 28th, Monday night. And um, and then there was something that you said you had wanted to talk about, too, before we closed out. Was it the scheduling for... Oh, oh, for Mascot. We were going to talk Mascot. about Mascot. Oh, yeah, really quickly. Um, Mascot I, TV is awesome. I and, watched. Uh, I was going to stay up last night, uh, but I had to go to bed and watch Frankenstein's Daughter, hmm. which is, like, uh, great. Yeah. Um, I um, it, Full disclosure, I was lucky enough to be asked by Mascot TV to program a lot of horror triple features for Halloween. So a lot of the movies you're going to be talking about are ones that I was lucky enough to, like, sort of sc- scroll through their library and see what they had and then and choose films for their screenings. Actually, is today the 22nd, isn't it? Today is indeed the 22nd. And tonight on Mascot is a great triple feature. They're showing Tombs of the Blind Dead, Spanish film, I believe. Right. Armando yeah. Diasorio directed right. that one. Yeah. yeah. And that's the first one? I, you know what? Because they, each of them have so many different titles, I don't actually know uh, what order they go in. Well, this one is also called Mark of the Devil Part 5, Night of the Blind Terror. Uh, you know, so whatever. Part 5, so clearly not the first no, one. No, I guess not. No, uh, uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which is also called The, the Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue right. and Breakfast at the Manchester Morgue. I've never heard that title no, before. That's, that's interesting. It's, it's, um, yeah, that one's directed by, uh, I believe it's uh, Jorge Grau, maybe? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yes. And uh, finally, uh, Lucio Fulci classic, The City of the Living Dead, also known as The Gates of Hell. Yeah. Which is, I believe, the second in the trilogy, uh, of, The Gates of, of Hell. The Gates of Hell, yeah. Uh, the last one being House by the Cemetery, the first one being The Beyond. Yes, I believe so. Okay. Yeah, and that's a, a fun, upbeat movie that starts with a priest hanging himself in the in the cemetery. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so that's just a regular hoot. Yeah, that's right. But uh, yeah, that one's uh, that one's sort of like a modern day zombie triple feature. That was what I was thinking. I think me. that has the one with the, the girl uh, vomiting up her intestines also. Uh, I mean, it's a Lucio Fulci movie, so yeah. that you got to narrow that down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> several different titles of Lucio Fulci. <laughs> So, all right, so that does it for our time for this week. Um, please uh, feel free to stay tuned next Tuesday from 1030 to 11. Absolutely, next Tuesday. Again. Yes, we'll be here. And, uh, and you know, if you go over to check out that uh, triple feature tonight on Mascot, you can also go to their website, which will show you programming for the next couple of nights. But they're doing every single night for the entirety of Halloween. They're doing a triple feature that's uh, themed on a different theme every night. So there's a lot of fun stuff to be seen there. Um, if you can, if you've got the expendable income, uh, be sure to support the American Genre Film archive because they've got some fantastic titles and they're they're out there doing god's work and uh, we should support them right we are if they are our missionaries then we should be the people that are paying their tithes which god we don't exactly know but but you know but there's definitely one of them it's one of them so one of the pantheon uh, so thanks for tuning in and we will be talking to you again soon have a great week bye-bye